I'm glad to be here with you, and uh, I'm here, my wife uh, Maureen, and uh, a lot of friends, and I'm so glad to be here um, this morning to tell you a little bit about my uh, walk over the last couple of years, and uh, this is a remarkable church in a remarkable community. Uh, we've made Virginia Beach our home for most of the last 30 years, except for time up in Richmond, and the fact that this is just a stone's throw from where the settlers planted that cross in 1607 with Pastor Robert L. Hunt and claimed this land for Jesus is, you know, a remarkable, special place. And I know the gospel still goes forward from here with wonderful ministries like yours. And Pastor, I want to thank you for your 23 years here, you know, three decades plus in the ministry and the work that you're doing literally around the world in Africa, Togo, other, other places uh, to be able to spread the word. Thank you. And, and really, for all of you, as you support the ministry, you actively uh, engage in the ministry, because I, I love the fact it's Spring Branch Community Church. You know, church just isn't on Sunday. Church is something you do 24 hours a day to be able to be part and active in the community, and I'm really, really grateful uh, that you do that. So thank you for having me. Uh, it's nice to be back in Virginia Beach after a stint in the, uh, the holy city on the hill, Richmond, not Jerusalem. Uh, that's the way Virginians look at it anyway, and give me a chance to uh, talk to you a little bit. And I want to talk about uh, waiting and hope, uh, which is kind of the story of the Advent candle. The pastors tell me this is a little bit of a new tradition here at Spring Branch, and I'm so glad you adopted it. I grew up in a liturgical church where I still go quite a bit, but I love that season of Advent between Thanksgiving and Christmas as we wait on the Christ child, and every, every Sunday when that candle got lit, it was one more step closer to Santa Claus and, and Jesus. And so I just love that feeling of anticipation and waiting and hoping. And, and in a lot of measure, that's the story of our, our lives, is, uh, is waiting, hoping, trusting, enduring through hardship. And so wh why do we need hope? Well, we, we need hope because what happened in the Garden of Eden uh, the fall of man, that while things were perfect as Adam and Eve joined hands and walked in the cool of the day in the garden with the Lord himself, that because of sin and the serpent, there was the fall. And so because the wages of sin was death, without the promise and hope in a Savior, uh, there, there, is, there is nothing but... Uh, nothing but a dismal view of the world. So hope, and the hope in that candle every week, three weeks now from the, from the Christ child coming back, it's just a, it's an exciting time. So I, you probably know, do you know even atheists have hope? It's true. I mean, you know that story about the uh, atheist that was walking out in the, the woods late one afternoon all by himself, enjoying nature, and all of a sudden he sees out of the corner of his eye this great brown bear charging at him, and he is scared. He starts running. Uh, he knows he can't outrun the bear. He trips over a log. He's down. The bear's on, almost on top of him. And he closes his eyes and looks up to heaven and says, I hope this bear is a Christian. All of a sudden, the bear stops right in front of him, looks up to heaven, gets down on his knees, closes his eyes, folds his hands, says, thank you, God, for this food I'm about to eat. <laughs> so, 
You got to be very specific when you ask God for things because he will deliver exactly the way you ask him. Or if you give him latitude, you never know what may happen. So be specific in your prayer. The story of hope is the story of Israel. I mean, no nation probably needed hope more than Israel. They were always in captivity, always in bondage, always having somebody uh, against them from the beginning of time. And, you know, whether it was being carried off uh, by Egypt into slavery for all those years and then being led out by, by Moses after all the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea um, and the hope of the promised land that had come from Abraham, whether it was the um, Romans who were the ones who occupied Jerusalem at the time of, uh, of the birth of Jesus, the captivity in Babylon for, for, dec- for centuries and, uh, prior to the birth of Jesus. And then in 70 AD, the temple walls being destroyed and the people hoping for all that time as they scattered about all the regions of the earth, the hope that one day the nation of Israel will be reconstituted. And, you know, for some of us, it happened in, in our lifetime, 1947, the nation of Israel. After all that time, 19 centuries becomes uh, a nation again. And all that time, the people of Israel never gave up hope. They had hope in the Savior, and they had hope that God, making him their special chosen people, would never give up on them. And the promises of a Savior, the hope in a Savior, go back to that very fall of man in the Garden of Eden. You know, after the fall and God casts them out of the garden, he turns to the serpent and he says, basically, I am going to put a seed of enmity between you and the woman, and one day the seed will crush your head. And so from that very dawn of the fall of man, there was this hope in a Savior because of the sin of man. By the way, are there any sinners here? Okay, three or four, that's good. I was wondering, Pastor told me I might be the only one here, but I'm glad to know that's not true. So he promises them in the Garden of Eden. He tells Abraham, because you were willing to sacrifice your own son. Prophetic uh, foreshadowing of Jesus. Because you were able to do that, I am promising you that your descendants will be like the grains of sand. I'm giving you a promise of a Savior. Like David, the greatest of kings but the worst of sinners, a murderer, an adulterer. God took away his hope with the death of his first son. But then because of David's faithfulness, he became a man after God's own heart, and he was given the son who became the wisest of all men, Solomon. And he became the one who God promised would be uh, the house and the lineage from which the Savior came. And God is able to restore all things and give hope from those who are faithful. And so we have always had that hope of the Savior and our heartfelt need of the, uh, of the need for a Savior uh, because of our sin in our emptiness without, without Jesus. Hope, uh, hope and love are one of the two great motivators. The other ones are hate and fear. 
And you see that playing out in our society today. You know, God always encourages us to take the path of hope and love as the way to truly overcome sin and death and destruction and hopelessness in the world. You know, people in my profession, my former profession, I'm a recovering politician, as you can see here today. <laughs> Bill Clinton, he's a man from hope, Arkansas. But he ran on that platform of hope. President Obama, hope and change, uh, giving people a brighter view of America. Donald Trump, he won on a campaign slogan of make America great again. Regardless of what you thought the baseline of America was, whether you think it's good or bad or going off the deep end or still on the right track, he sold a promise of making America great, better, more prosperous, something more than it is today. Hope is the most powerful of motivators, I believe. And so, you know, Paul tells us in Corinthians that there are three things re that remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, but the title of my speech this morning is, and hope ain't far behind, because <laughs> if you don't have hope in a Savior for our own sinfulness and in what tomorrow may bring, uh, life is a tough road. But thank God that we have that Advent candle where in three weeks we're going to, you know, welcome back in our hearts this, this uh, baby, this hope of salvation, this hope of eternal life. The scriptures are just replete with these admonitions about hope. You know, Job was probably the most uh, afflicted of all men. You know, before I had this, I've been a believer most of my life, but until I had this recent little disagreement with the federal government that some of you may have read about, I never had read Job. But after I started experiencing a little bit of suffering, I thought, you know, I better, I better see what this Job guy did because he endured an awful lot and came out on the right end. And so I began to read uh, all 42 of those chapters. And what I realized that 41 and a half of those chapters were about suffering and suffering well. And at the very end it said, and God restored everything double. He had beautiful daughters, the end. The whole focus was on suffering, not on restitution by the Lord at the end. But it tells you the hope that you can always have if you trust and believe. The 15th chapter of Job's says after Job had lost everything, his sheep, his cattle, his wife, some of his kids, his money, his health, his reputation, he says, crying out to the Lord, he said, though you may slay me, I will hope in him. Powerful statement. No matter what else is taken away in one's life, you can always have hope in the Lord. You know that great passage from Jeremiah where he says, I have plans for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, I have plans for you. Plan for a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I have, to, I have plans to give you hope and a future. It's one that I've got many times. I think my wife has written that to me many times over the years. You know, hope is so important as a motivator. Proverbs has this wonderful admonition about how to live one's life, to live a life of hope, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight, will make your path straight. 
It's a great admonition to just to trust. We cannot predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, much less tomorrow. But if you trust and wait and hope in God's promises, which are always true, then you know you will have um, a very bright future. When I was going through some of this ordeal, I thought about that, and I thought about why was it that when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, they only got that manna for that day? You know, they were grumbling, they were making false idols, they were doing all kinds of bad things in the desert on the way to the promised land. They forgot about the promise, and they just thought about their conditions of the day. And so what God did, if you remember, he gave them manna. For how long? One day. At the end of the day, it deteriorated, it rotted, infested with maggots. And so that required them to hope and to trust that the next day God was going to be equally faithful. It's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in giving us the Lord's Prayer, said, give us this day our daily bread. That's why he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about anything. Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. You know, even, even the lilies of the field and all their, uh, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't as radiant as these lilies of the field, and yet they're thrown into the fire tomorrow. And it's a beautiful passage about this idea of hoping, living today, not worrying about tomorrow, plan for tomorrow, be good stewards of your time, talent, and treasure, but, but live this day. Smell the roses. I've learned to do that a little bit myself over the, last, over the last few years. And then, of course, the greatest of all the passages of hope are things, are passages like John 3.16. The, the ultimate hope for all of us. No matter our race, national origin, our politics, at the end of the day, there will be a day of judgment. And for those who choose to put their hope and trust in the Lord, the promise of John 3.16 is that God, lo- God loved us so much that those who believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. You know, this life is fleeting. Whether you have 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. In the big scheme of things, in eternity, this is such a small passage of time. And so our time here should be dedicated, obviously, to service, but should always be infused every day with this idea of, of hope, the hope expressed in those candles, the hope of a Savior, the hope of the second coming when all the saints will be called home. And that's, the, that's the message of the gospel, faith, hope, and love. And hope ain't far behind love when it comes to motivating us to live uh, every day. I... Um, I had, for most of my 60 years, an incredibly good life. And I had so many blessings. I had a great dad, mom, Air Force officer, average middle class, leave it to Beaver family. And uh, so when I got home from work on February 13th of 2013 and I found out that the, the government of my country, that I had served for 21 years in the Army and multiple years in state office, was now investigating me and thought I was doing something wrong, and my wife and my kids as well, you know, I was devastated. I had been a believer most of my life, but 
I had uh, never had an experience that shook me to my core so much. I've been attorney general, I've been a prosecutor, I've been an army officer, always trying to do things to uphold the law. I was told by my parents to follow the golden rule, to do what's right, to help other people, to build bridges. And now the government that I was actively serving at the time was saying, you have done something wrong and we are investigating you and we're coming after you. I tell you, that was a day that was hard to find hope. And then on Easter Sunday of 2013, the front page above the fold in the Washington Post said, McDonald receives gifts from donors. It went on to chronicle some things that I think were a false narrative, but yet uh, told us some things that I had done. Now, I had always complained to my press guy while I was governor that, you know, we don't get enough press. We should be doing more. Well, that, you know, it's kind of like the atheist with the bear. You know, you got to be careful what you ask for because that was the beginning of uh, about three years of press that I could have done without, I have to say. But during that time, uh, God taught me some things I never understood, which is hope and faith and trust and living one day at a time. And as a result, I learned uh, about amazing grace and peace. And I want to share just a little bit about, about that with you. Uh, during that time from that Easter Sunday story in 2013 and in through the summer, and I was in, trying to enjoy my last year of having this immense privilege of being, uh, being a governor, uh, it became increasingly apparent by the subpoenas and the interviews and the grand juries and so forth that, uh, that the government was taking this all very seriously. I knew with all my heart that I did not violate the law, that I didn't do anything that was, uh, that was wrong under the Virginia laws. And so I believe that at the end of the day, somehow this was going to work out. But in the meantime, things did not look very good day to day. And it was, it was tough. So my staff uh, started thinking about this, and they did what all good staffs do. They said, we need to get him out of this office because he's driving us crazy. And um, so they came up with this wonderful plan to send me to uh, Afghanistan because I was the commander of the National Guard overall and uh, former Army officer. So I had an incredible experience for about 10 days in Kuwait and Afghanistan in Lundstuhl, Germany, and seeing the warriors and seeing people that not only risk life and limb, but some who had actually lost limbs and loved ones who had lost, um, families who had lost loved ones. And it really kind of changed my view that I needed to stop complaining because no matter how much you suffer in your life, I guarantee you there are many others who suffer worse than you. That was one of the greatest blessings of going through this in a way was that no matter how bad this got, it was going to be over at some point. But for people that have chronic drug addiction or have cancer or have lost a loved one to suicide or, or a motor vehicle accident or had something else going on in their lives that was much more significant, those are the things that might require suffering for their entire lives. And so it just gave me a different perspective to go and be with the warriors, which is one of the great advantages of living in this community where you live with warriors all the time. Uh, who understand freedom and liberty in a way that most people don't. The other thing that happened to me during that time is God just inspired me and laid on my heart this Psalm 35. Um, if you don't remember anything else I, re I say to you today, if you or any of you, uh, has anybody here ever suffered? Any, anybody ever had any problems? Okay, perfect. 
Pastor, you know your flock. It's exactly what you said. Uh, it's part of the human condition. You know, because my suffering happened to be on the front page of the Washington Post for three years, it was a little more public. Some of you have the privilege of suffering in private. I did not. Uh, neither did our family. So I learned from a lot of other people who shared with me their own stories. It's just part of the human condition. And it is a purpose that is godly. God disciplines those he loves. I said to God many times, would you please quit loving me so much? I've had enough of this. The scriptures also say that when you are put through times of suffering and challenges, especially if you think it's not right or not just or it's due to circumstances outside of your control, um, it is a kind of suffering that does a good work in you. The scriptures talk about gold being refined and the dross being burned out so the gold is purified so that it will be a better quality. Well, that's what happens through suffering in the human condition. I find myself today to be a far more faithful, hopeful, uh, resolute person than I was four years ago because of the privilege of suffering. The book of James in the first chapter says that you should consider it joy, joy to go through trials of every kind because it teaches you perseverance so you'll be complete, lacking in nothing. We should all be praying for suffering if that, if that scripture is true. And I've learned through this that, that it is. It gives you a glimpse of the cross when you suffer and have hope in the future that because of your faith in God, not from anything you've done, but because of your faith in God and your trust in him implicitly, that there is so much hope that either on this earth or in heaven that there is going to be a reward of, of untold proportions. It gives you a sense of the cross. Remember Jesus on Palm Sunday riding in, riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey? And all the people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, King of kings, Lord of lords. Five days later, same people. Crucify him, crucify him. Kind of reminded me of being in politics. Same kind of thing happens there. So your hope and your trust during those times of agony, knowing it's part of the human condition, is one, to make you a better person, to purify you like gold, uh, and two, to give you more empathy for your neighbor so you'll be more active and alive and more hopeful in following that golden rule. I left office uh, the second week in January of uh, last year, 2015, and 10 days later I was indicted on 13 charges by the United States government. My wife was indicted on 11 charges. It was a very tough day in our lives. So we began, the, we began this uh, odyssey of getting ready for a trial, a real trial. During that time, God sent us angels. How many of you believe in angels? We've got a lot of believers here. The number of hands keep going up as I keep ask, asking these questions. But you know, angels aren't just like, uh, you know, flowery uh, figures that appear as these spiritual apparitions. They, are, they can be real people. And I met those angels at the 7-Eleven and the food line and the gas station, and they would just say to me, people I had never seen before, never seen since, and they would just say, you hang in there, we're praying for you, we believe in you, we love you, 
this is going to be okay. I see one of my angels here sitting in the front row, Gene and Angie Loving. Thank you for being angels in my life over this last couple years. So God does not expect us just to be hopeful and faithful without evidence. He gives us tangible signs that it's going to be okay. Let me tell you about a couple of those. On September 4th of uh, 2014, which was 27 months ago today, um, we had the worst day of our life. We had a jury of 12 of our peers return uh, 11 guilty verdicts against me and eight against, nine against my wife <clears throat> for violating the public trust. Uh, it, it, was, it was the worst, worst day of my life. You know, I was so hopeful after the trial was over that this jury of my peers, having heard the evidence, would come to the same conclusion that I did, I think the press did, sitting in the courtroom, that it was going to be okay. But it wasn't okay. And so we ended up uh, being convicted in September. And it was an extraordinarily difficult stretch those next few days, but it began the most amazing journey of God's grace and peace and forgiveness uh, that, I have, uh, that I have ever uh, privileged to go through. So this past January, January 6th, I had to sit in federal court, and after a lengthy set of witnesses coming forward to say positive things about us, uh, I had to listen to a judge say that you're going to go to a federal prison for two years. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, I really appreciate this free public housing, you know, that's very nice. But, God, where are you? I thought, I thought you were going to protect me. Two days later, the same judge said, we're not giving you any bond pending appeal. You can go ahead and do your appeals, but you're still going to have to go report. So we were very despondent. And then a miraculous thing happened. Four days later, on January 12th, we experienced the birth of our first grandchild. Autumn Maria Zabowski, born on her mother's birthday. And you see about eight months, six months, no, about seven months before that on Father's Day, right prior to the trial, my daughter told us, Dad, I'm pregnant. We're going to have your first grandchild. So this cycle of hope during that worst time of trial and sentencing with the promise and the hope of a grandchild and then this beautiful little granddaughter being born six days after the worst day of our life told me that God was telling me, I'm not going to give you captivity in your future. I'm giving you freedom and a grandchild. We appealed to the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit turned us down on August 20th of 2015. Two days later, they said, and we're not giving you bond pending appeal. You can appeal to the United States Supreme Court, but we're not going to grant you bond, so you're going to have to go report. I talked to my lawyers and, and said, okay, guys, what are we going to do? And I said, well, the Supreme Court has not granted bond pending appeal to the United States Supreme Court in 40 years. So, you know, Governor, as bad as this is, we believe in you. We're, we're going to pursue this appeal, but you're going to have to go. 
So we had everything ready to go. Divided up my life, had kids and others taking care of everything that I needed to take care of. And then another miraculous thing happened to give me hope. Eight days after we got turned down by the Court of Appeals, my second daughter had our second grandchild on her birthday. And I said, okay, there is a pattern here, God, and I like it. <laughs> and it's, it's grandchildren, and it's the future, and it's hope, and I appreciate it. That was on a Friday night. On Monday afternoon, I got a call from my lawyers and said, you will not believe what just happened. The Supreme Court of the United States just ruled that they are going to give you bond pending appeal for the first time in 40 years. We don't understand it. And so it was a great celebration because that was the toughest of all the rulings that we had to face. We needed to have three rulings to win. Bond pending appeal, granting the appeal, and then winning the appeal. And this one was the one that was the impossible one. And yet God said, I'm giving you your grandson, Logan Patrick McDonald, and I'm giving you freedom. And you just keep your eyes on me. Don't worry about your circumstances. Don't worry about the latest court ruling. But you keep your eyes focused on me and live one day at a time and hope and trust and pay attention to all those angels I'm sending you and it's going to be okay. I mean, I really believe that in an unusual way. So to fast forward in January of uh, this past year, 2016, the Supreme Court granted us what's called a writ of certiorari. In other words, they were here our appeal. And obviously we're elated. A month later, Justice Scalia dies. All the reading we had done, this was our champion. He was the one that had written the great opinions on the issues in my case. I was devastated for the country for 10 seconds. And then I said, God, what about me? That was my champion. <laughs> a couple months later, on April 27th, we walk into the United States Supreme Court in a miraculous half an hour, uh, the second half an hour of that hearing, it was pretty evident to us that this United States Supreme Court, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, all believed that the government's theory of the case was completely wrong. And then two months later, on June 27th, on an 8-0 vote, they unanimously reversed uh, the convictions and vacated the convictions. And then a couple months later, <clears throat> September 8th, just a few, day, a few months ago, uh, the government uh, decided to drop the case, realizing they did not have the case under the right law. And so I tell you all that to say that even in walking in the valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist describes in Psalm 23, even when you see things that just don't look possible, uh, whether it's your lawyer or your business partner or your realtor or whoever that tells you this cannot be done, you know that all things are possible with God. You know that there is always that hope because despite the sinfulness and suffering and heartache and heartbreak in the world, that our eternal hope is always in the Savior, the risen Lord. And that's really the story now of our case as we're going through this period of restoration. The last evidence that I had that God was in this all the time is that Psalm 35 that I got was the travails of David shaking his fist at God and saying, why are you having all these people pursuing me, why are they setting traps for me? Why are false witnesses coming forward and accusing me? You know, why is this all happening? And then in the last couple 
verses of Psalm 35, David says, Lord, vindicate me in your righteousness. And it's a beautiful expose on vindication because of your trust in God. And while at times my faith was weak, I, I knew when you go from governor to indicted in 10 days, you have nowhere to go but your faith in God. And saying, Lord, I am sold out trusting you to do this to make sure the justice system works right. September 8th was the day that the U.S. government said we're dropping the case. The headlines in the Richmond Times dispatched on September 9th and many papers around the state was one word, vindication. And so I felt like that was one of those God winks of hope where he said, I've been with you all the time. You've trusted me and I have delivered you. And so that's why I'm here today to tell this great story of hope, of God's faithfulness, the story of redemption, the story of second chances, uh, his story of this hope and belief in a Savior. That's why we light these candles. That's why we can endure the travails of life. Uh, you know, God's plan for salvation was one that I dare say none of us, if we had a choice, would devise. I mean, think about our human mind. I have two sons, my wife and I have two sons, three girls. Uh, now, if I was going to come up with a plan of salvation, I would not take one of my sons and ask him to go die on a cross for you. I mean, I'm sorry, you guys are beautiful and wonderful and everything, but I mean, that is a heavy lift. But yet, that is the plan that God devised for the salvation of the world. And then after three days, to raise him out of that tomb, to have him walk the earth as a testimony, and then to bring him up bodily to heaven as an eternal sign of hope that when this life is done, those that get the word, thou good and faithful servant, will spend eternity with him. It's a remarkable, remarkable plan of salvation that could only be created from a loving, benevolent, all-powerful God who is a God of love and a God of hope. So, you know, what I wanted to tell you, I guess as you uh, go through this this Christmas season, is um, do what you say you're going to do every Christmas. And this is gonna, that is, this is going to be a different Christmas, right? I'm not going to focus on the presence. I'm going to focus on Jesus. Don't we say that every year? So I'm saying to you, um, don't, don't put your hope and trust in government, first and foremost, because you'll be disappointed, no matter what party's in control. The greatness of our country is not government. Uh, it's churches, it's synagogues, it's the charitable organizations, it's the family, it's uh, the person that does these random acts of kindness every day without looking for credit. That's the greatness of America. It's not government. So, as you live out your life, last three weeks of the Christmas season, I'd say, don't put your hope in government. You know, government, while it may do a lot of things to protect our liberties, cannot be the source of your hope. The founders didn't think so. If you look at the last paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, they put their hope in divine providence and the supreme judge of the universe. That was their words for God, Mr. Jefferson wrote. 
And don't put your hope in Target or Walmart or Amazon or any of those other places because that hope will end on December 26th when the presents are unwrapped and that's done. You'll bring smiles to faces. It's a sign of your love for people. But keep your focus this year on the hope that comes only from what you read in John 3.16. It's the hope that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, that you have this hope of eternal life. You know, I Googled eternity one time. You know what I found out? That's a long time. You know, this life is a pretty short time. But the decisions you make in this life will determine where you spend that eternity. It's a powerful and important decision. So I'd encourage you, just as I tried to do, and I didn't do it well, but I learned that um, the only place really to put that hope is in, is in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the one that was born of a virgin, as we sang this morning, the one whose birth was announced by a star settling over a manger that the wise men came from hundreds of miles in order to visit this baby. Put your hope in the one that walked on water, that healed the sick, that raised the centurion's daughter and Lazarus from the dead, the one that knew every hair on your head before you were born. That's where you put your hope. Have a hopeful Christmas. Thank you.